please turn in your Bibles with me this morning to Revelation 11. Revelation 11. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 4. And I want to repeat something I said last Sunday. It is of utmost importance that we interpret these symbols in Revelation by what we may know from all Scripture and especially by what John is referring to in the Old Testament, drawing heavily from the prophets who were pointing forward to Christ and his kingdom. As we do that, as, as you heed that understanding, that perspective, I want to start with this. I want you to look at the title of the message. The title is, On the Evidence of Two Witnesses, with a question mark. On the evidence of two witnesses. To bring forth a charge, especially one that could lead to death, there had to be corroborating evidence between at least two witnesses, not only in the Old Testament, but carried on through the New Testament. This comes from Deuteronomy 17, verses 2 through 13 where Moses reveals God's plan for Israel's spiritual and social well-being regarding how judicial process should be carried out in order to engage the accused with equity and careful consideration. In this judicial process, the facts of the case must be established by at least two witnesses. When passages like Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, reinforce Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, where this is found, uh, saying that there must be the testimony of two or three witnesses, the emphasis here is understandably more than two. It cannot be one. It has to be at least two, but preferably more than two. With this in mind, let's look at our text in Revelation chapter 11. Verses 3 through 4. This is the risen Christ, and he says, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, instruct our hearts and minds through your word. Speak through me as your servant to your people this morning. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now as we consider our text, uh, the question is, are we talking about only two witnesses here? Are we talking about only two witnesses? I, I genuinely feel for those who try to interpret a passage like this literally, uh, especially when you go a few verses down and you can look at verse 8. This is Revelation 11, verse 8, which says their bodies, speaking of the two witnesses, will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively or spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. 
Now, anyone with even the most modest amount of understanding will know that Jesus was not crucified in Egypt or Sodom. He was tried in Jerusalem and he was crucified outside the walls of the city on a hill called Golgotha. The point here is that Jerusalem is being described spiritually in line with the city of Sodom and the land of Egypt, which both stood very aggressively in rebellion against God and his people. That's the imagery, that's the symbolism that John wants you to understand. So you have a symbolic picture here. So if that is symbolic, you need to understand that that which precedes it is also symbolic or spiritual in nature. So a literal understanding of two witnesses will bear little fruit in way of understanding this passage. These two witnesses are figurative or more specifically They symbolize what is spiritually uh, going on in this world between Christ's ascension and his second coming. Remember, there should be no need for a decoder ring when it comes to understanding the mysteries of the book of Revelation. What is needed is a thorough understanding of Scripture. All Scripture in the New Testament and the Old, but especially the prophets that point forward to Christ and his kingdom. So to begin with, uh, who are these two witnesses? Some commentators have seen this passage referring to the time period preceding the Protestant Reformation. The two witnesses are the Old and New Testaments. A testament is what? A testimony. It's a witness. So the 1260 days is taken in a prophetic sense where a day stands for a year. Hence, you are looking at 1,260 years instead of 1,260 days. These 1,260 years refer to the struggle between the true worshipers of Christ proclaiming the full counsel of God's word uh, and the false church of nominal Christianity largely embodied by papal Rome at this time. By saying papal Rome... By saying Papal Rome instead of the Roman Catholic Church, the point is being made here that Rome traded one anti-Christian emperor, the Caesar, for another one, the Pope. The reformer Martin Luther sought to make that abundantly clear in his dealings with the papacy. This Roman religious system will lay siege to the true church for 42 months, noting that sieges uh, were normally cataloged in months when when recorded in history. Even though the Old and New Testaments were being proclaimed by some, those two witnesses uh, of the Old and New Testaments are eventually silenced. These witnesses are killed or put to death by the papal bull of 1513, which was a bull of was an edict or command that went through the land. And this edict or this bull strive to quell all opposition uh, to the Church of Rome, silencing every, every voice of truth. Yet three and a half years later, what happened? That was 1513. You know what happened three and a half years later? We'll be celebrating it in a few Sundays. Martin Luther, 1517. He tacked those 95 theses on the, on the Wittenberg door. 
And uh, from that perspective, it is seen that uh, the two testaments were brought back to life again and put forth for discussion. Anyway, there is some truth tied to this, to this as the Roman Catholic Church was the false church of that time. Uh, moreover, there were those who openly proclaimed the true word of God and were severely persecuted as a result by papal Rome. Yet the problem with this view is that it limits John's revelation to that time period when the revelation spans the period between the ascension of Christ and his return. The Pope may be a manifestation of the spirit of Antichrist, but he is not the final Antichrist. So who are these two witnesses? (laughs) Several of our church fathers, the early church fathers, believe the two witnesses to be Enoch and Elijah. I think one of the reasons is that both of these individuals were immediately translated into glory And they were considered faithful witnesses to God here in this world. And there is some scriptural support for this, but it doesn't fully support what's going on here in Revelation. Others believe these two witnesses are Enoch and Noah. Still others believe that John is referring to the two churches uh, of Philadelphia and Smyrna who were not rebuked by Christ but encouraged as faithful witnesses on the Lord's behalf? Or are they the two witnesses of general revelation that we heard in Psalm 19, verse 1? The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim his handiwork. Now the heavens do declare the glory of God, and everything in and under the sky does declare his handiwork. The Hebrew word translated as sky is rakia, which refers to expanse. And you find that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 6 following, where God separates the waters below, which is the seas, from the waters above, which God called the sky. The point here by the psalmist in Psalm 19.1 is that all creation, whether they are birds of the air, fish of the sea, Uh, Land animals and man, uh, the insects and all their different domains, all various kinds of plants, every living thing reveals God's labor and creation so that no creature can miss God's divine power and glory manifest in his creation. Yet although the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands, they do not reveal God as gracious redeemer. We find this in special revelation, which is in the Bible, God's word. So you say, aha, we're there. The two witnesses are general revelation and special revelation. Right, Pastor? Well, yes and no. Yes and no. Both general and special revelation do bear witness to who God is, and special revelation does declare God's salvation through his son Jesus Christ. But here in Revelation, beginning with the seven churches of Asia Minor, there is an emphasis on the personal proclamation of the gospel 
especially in Revelation 11, verse 3, which says, which says, they will be clothed in sackcloth, which expresses a general grief towards all sin and, retor- and repentance of sin. In other words, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Those who grieve not only over their own sin and what their own sin accomplishes, but over this sinful ignorance and deception that so many people are under and that the proclamation of the gospel, if it is presented and rejected, what that judgment will bring forth for those who reject the gospel, for those who reject Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. There is that sense of grief, that sense of mourning over such loss. Commentator G.K. Beale says that the, this attire of sackcloth suggests mourning over the judgment that their message will result in, together with their hope that at least some of their hearers will repent. All right, pastor, quit keeping us in suspense. Who are or what are these two witnesses? And my question back to you is, oh, are there only two? Are there only two? Look at verse 3 of Revelation 11. This is the risen Christ Jesus, and he's saying, and I will give power, I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. The first thing you need to notice is there's a conjunction there, and that connects that phrase with what comes before it. So that we are to understand that these two witnesses come from the true worshipers of God who are in the temple. These witnesses come forth then as those who are members of the body of Christ. The matter of 1200, that they prophesy for 1260 days uh, of, or of 42 months, both these numbers are symbolic. These numbers do not depict a length of time, but when you look at their their place in the Old Testament context, they depict uh, a type of history characterized characterized by violent opposition to Christ and his church. I had already mentioned the siege by the false church against the true, uh, and that's 42 months. And you say, well, this is days now. We're talking about 1,260 days. Why didn't he just repeat the four and a half, 42 months? Or why didn't he say it in the sense of three and a half years? Uh, Well, when it comes to the witness of the church, that is personal. And uh, the witness of the church, who is the body of Christ, this witness is a daily endeavor. It's something that daily needs to be accomplished. And this is what I mean by this. Look in your Bibles at Luke chapter 9, verses 22 and 23. This is Jesus speaking. Remember, Jesus also said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. No servant is greater than his master, right? So this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. It's it's him speaking to us. Luke 9, 22 and 23 says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. These who are false teachers. And he must be killed. 
and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, if any of you would come after me, and I would say you, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, how often? What's the word there? I didn't hear it. What's that word? Daily. Take up your cross daily and follow him. Taking up your cross daily means that you are willing to sacrifice. You are willing to suffer for the sake of Christ on a daily basis. This is a daily decision to trust and obey your Lord because the challenges to keep you from following him are always before you. This is a daily process, a daily decision. Did you know that Christianity was the official religion for Russia from the 10th century to the early 1900s? Did you know that? That's nearly a 1,000 years. Our country's not even 500 years old. For almost a 1,000 years, Christianity was the major religion of Russia. You say, well, pastor, what happened to them? Well, in 1917, the Bolshevik Revolution happened, wherein the communists sought to eradicate Christianity as an obstacle to setting up their totalitarian state. They started off with military intimidation, seeking to simply quash Christianity as a movement, but uh, Christians still held to their faith. They still held to Christ. And so then they moved to the process of indoctrination. And they started indoctrinating the children of Russia, all of them, including the children of Christians, hoping that that would change things around. And that would give them the leverage that they needed. Well, World War II came along and put a halt to this effort. But in the process, millions and millions of people, mainly Christians, died as a result of this persecution. World War II put a halt to it, but soon as, as soon as the war was over, the leadership was back to strive in their effort to strive to suppress Christianity and Christians. Yet the invisible church still existed, and it still exists today. Eventually in the 1980s, there was greater tolerance for religious freedom, and when the Soviet Union dissolved, This religious freedom revealed that sections of the population had kept the faith even in the presence of this severe persecution. God had preserved his people. So you should be seeing by now that these witnesses symbolically or spiritually represent the invisible or true church which is kept by God's spirit. Turn in your Bibles now to Acts chapter 1, looking at verses 7 through 8. Acts 1, verses 7 through 8. We're talking about the power of Christ. We're talking about the life of Christ. This is the risen Christ Jesus speaking to his disciples, telling them to wait in Jerusalem until they receive the gift the Heavenly Father promised in which they will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. Here's what Jesus says in Acts verse chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. It is not for you to know the times or dates 
The Father is set by his own authority. I would love to just shout that out to everyone who thinks that they have a specific date for Jesus' return. They have a specific date for this, a specific date for that. Jesus is the Lord of the cosmos. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And and he's saying as the risen Lord here, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father is set by his own authority. Hence these numbers in John, who was one of the disciples listening to Jesus that day, are symbolic. They are symbolic. Verse 8 but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. How many witnesses are there present with Jesus when he says this? I can guarantee you it was more than two. They testify that what Jesus said and did is true, and they are going to testify throughout the whole world. The Apostle John writes in Revelation 1, verse 5, Grace and peace to you from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Jesus' witness is not only his own proclamation, but that he was resurrected from the dead that he triumphed over death, which testifies to his redemptive power. And that's why we sing that song, because Jesus lives, so shall we. Because he has overcome the power of death in him, so shall we. He is the firstborn from the dead, the firstfruits of life, triumphing over death, and he ascends to the right hand of God the Father. He, he sends his Holy Spirit to his disciples, giving them life and power from above. Look again, going back to Revelation 11. Look at verse 4. John writes, These witnesses are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. This is a prophetic reference going back to Zechariah chapter 4, specifically verses 11 and following, in which the prophet Zechariah receives a vision from the Lord. And he sees a candlestick holding up seven lamps. If you guys are familiar with candelabras at weddings, oftentimes you'll have one big candlestick and it will hold seven or eight or however many candles in it. Uh, kind of in a row. You have kind of a picture of a a lampstand that branches out and holds seven lamps. But as as these seven lamps are here and they're burning, filled with oil, what he sees beyond that is a basin, a, a gold bowl, so to speak, that's full of olive oil. And from that bowl are, are seven rods or seven conduits through which this oil is coming to these lamps. And then by the bowl on either side is, is two olive trees, one on each side. And the olive trees represent the body of Christ. The fruitfulness is producing the fruit of the kingdom of God, which is the righteousness and life of Christ Jesus. So the life of these olive trees come from Christ Jesus. And that fruit 
continues to fuel, that fruit of the Holy Spirit continues to fuel the light that goes out into the world. And so when you think about the olive trees, when you think about the lampstands, and you think about the olive oil, what does that all represent? It represents the church. I would connect Christ to the church. If you want two witnesses, you can definitely talk about Christ Jesus as the husband and and the church as his bride who are proclaiming the truth until he returns. But I think when you look at what the prophet Zechariah is describing, it's Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit descends upon the disciples while they are praying. And in verse 3 says, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. That fire is the Spirit, the point that the Spirit separates and, and lights upon each head shows how each person is filled with the Holy Spirit. What happened after that? The light shone in the darkness. They went out and proclaimed. And everyone heard the gospel in their own language. And over 3,000 believed. And we see the process of bringing light to the world and salvation to those who are, who are bound by the darkness, being liberated by the light and truth of God's salvation through Jesus Christ. So the two witnesses are symbolic But in one sense, like I said, they can represent Christ and his church. And we'll address that later on in this book regarding what that's all about. Uh, I think there's a song that we used to sing as kids. Uh, Give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning. Give me oil in my lamp, I pray. Give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning, burning, burning. Keep me burning till the break of day. And what's the refrain? Sing Hosanna. Sing Hosanna. Sing Hosanna to the King of Kings. Sing Hosanna. Sing Hosanna to the King. Hosanna is a cry for salvation to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, to the Messiah, who is the risen Christ Jesus. So if the witness is the church, why not just say, Pastor, the church? Why not just flat out say it? Why, why are these symbols? Because the church has a specific mission. And our process is a judicial one. We proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who hear and believe will be saved. They will no longer be under the Lord's con- condemnation because they are now under his grace. But those who hear the gospel that you can be saved through Jesus Christ and reject it, you stand condemned. And God's judgment will fall upon you. This is a judicial process. You're thinking, no, pastor, we're just sharing the gospel. Yes, you are. You're sharing the gospel. And this is a judicial process because those who receive Jesus Christ will know his salvation. Those who reject him will know his judgment. And it will be permanent. You guys know this, but turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. We remember again the principle for a judicial process. The facts of the case must be established by how many witnesses? By two or more witnesses. 
William Hendrickson writes, these witnesses symbolize the church militant, bearing testimony through its ministers and missionaries throughout the present dispensation. Jesus says in John 3, verse 16 through 21, beginning with that beloved passage, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's life through God's grace. But it doesn't stop there. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. This is the judgment. Court is open. This is the judicial process, and in this process, this is the judgment. Light has come into this world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. That's why there is hatred towards Christians who are proclaiming the truth of Christ Jesus because people who are living in darkness do not want their deeds to be exposed. They are hiding from God, they are hiding from Christ, and they want to be be presented as those who are righteous, not those who stand condemned. They will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through the power of God. In Luke 18, verse 8, Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will there be, will there be a true church when Christ returns? This revelation is a warning, yes. It's a warning to heed the call of salvation through Jesus Christ. But also an encouragement that God will always have his witness in this world. The church shining the light of his truth in the midst of a deceived and wicked world. As Jesus said to those around him in Matthew 5 verse 16, he also says to you and I today, Let your light so shine that they may see your good works, those works that are accomplished by the Holy Spirit working in and through you, and that they may glorify your Father in heaven because of you. Amen. Let's respond by turning in our gray hymnals number 544 and standing to sing, Lead Me, Guide Me. (laughs) 